Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, we just wanted to follow up from the big news last week that Erlang is adopting xdocs starting with OTP27. Well, to continue that, Jose Valim shared a little bit more on Twitter, and we got a link to that in the show notes. But he says, we also have big plans for xdoc this year. For example, we hope we will finally ship auto-completion and search across packages. Now, David, we've been looking for that. Like We've been talking about that idea for that feature for some time. So it's just encouraging to see that Yes, they've, they've been thinking about that too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, very cool. Adding also that Erlang support makes the experience even better. You know, you can search across Elixir and Erlang. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. And then regarding Hexdocs, Jose went on to say, historically, Xdoc and Hexdocs were designed to be completely agnostic to language and tooling, but unification also gives opportunity to craft unique experiences. So we hope we can lean more on that from now on. That'll be interesting. Just like, what are they thinking? What what can you do when you have both of these systems kind of unified? Yeah, what does that what does that really mean, like practically? So, I I mean, the only thing I'm aware of was a suggestion, like upon publishing to Hexdocs, to check your Xdoc version and you know warn that there's a newer one out, for example. True. Yeah. So, like that could be a way that they work together, but like Hexdocs is just hosting static content. I don't know if you remember Distillery, but Distillery didn't use XDoc for a while. Right, yeah. Maybe even still. They used an alternative thing that was interesting. Like, stylistically, kind of looked better, but it was just a different thing. So I'm curious, yeah, what does that practically mean beyond, you know, just warning that there's a newer version of XDoc? I don't know. We'll find out, I guess. Yeah, I, I wonder if there's something like, in my library, maybe I have a link to the Erlang docs that say, you know, this is the... Erlang term to binary documentation so you can read up on what that does, you know, and kind of jump over and have like cross-linking opportunities there. I don't know. I'm very excited about that part. Like I still have to go into IEX and like H Erlang, (laughs) you know, dot term to binary or whatever. You know, that's how I gotta find those docs. (laughs) (laughs) It's easier to read that way. (laughs) Yeah. The Elixir docs, I typically go to Hexdoc and like, you know, yeah, go go there at the web browser route mm-hmm. but yeah all my erlang stuff is still an iex which has been fine no complaints but it's a disparate experience yeah it'll be cool to like search crypto functions because I, I always have to look that up how to how to use it at this time i don't i don't know i, I think otp 27 actually unifies this again but at this time there's like still an old and a new api for crypto functions so i, I have to like figure out which one is the new one <laughs> which one's the old one i don't know <laughs> It's soft deprecated at the moment. I think the next OTP version or the one after that, I, I forget. They have it written out somewhere. They're going to get rid of the old way of doing things. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. Very excited. I love this direction. This is great. Coming up next, we got the Elixir Slack inviter is back. So Parker Selbert shared in the Elixir Slack, I guess for those that were already part of it, <laughs> that people have been asking how to join the Slack community because the old like Elixir Slack in domain kind of died. Well, a solution for you, Parker and contributors have built an alternative solution. It's a tiny little plug app. It's hosted on Fly, round robins, the invites using unexpiring invites. That's a confusing thing to say, I guess. So the way that that works is people have to provide their invitation links or tokens or something. 
And those tokens are good for X number of invites. And the way that this little app works at any of these apps, this is, this is the way it works at a lot of other Slack communities too. You have to be invited into the Slack community. It's not like a free for all thing. So they build these little apps to essentially pull up these invites. And when somebody wants to get into the app, they go to this site, they get a one of those tokens that's still good. And then that's how they get automatically invited into the community, into the Slack. If you're curious about how all that stuff works, I gave you the, the short version, but if you want some of the details, this little round robin app is actually public. So you can go check it out. We've got some links hosted with uh, Soren2 slash Obin maintainer slash Parker. And he's the mm-hmm. maintainer of this one. And the readme is actually really great. It includes a screenshots on how to generate your Slack invite so you can contribute that up upstream. Anyway, very nice to see that. Love to see the Elixir Slack community. It's probably still the like the biggest. Is Slack async or sync? I, people always debate that. But whatever that whatever you consider it to be, Slack is probably the biggest. I'm going to call it async. But yeah, it's, it's technically async. I think in reality, people treat it like sync. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> it's still the biggest one. Chat rooms. Let me put it that way. It's still one of the biggest Elixir chat rooms out there. So if you're looking to ask questions or get support somewhere, that's probably a good place to, to drop in. I still recommend Elixir Forum because that stuff becomes searchable. So if you have like a good question, like Elixir Forum is a good place to go. One little fun thing there is with the Elixir Slack GitHub project, that's this tiny little app. The app consists of like two things, an application file, which just starts up bandit support, and then a, a plug. And the plug just does a redirect to whichever invite token it should be using. It's like, it is the tiniest little app. <laughs> really? It, I'm looking at it now. Yeah, you're right. It's, yeah, just application EX and plug EX. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> it's really cool just that you can create something that tiny and that's super focused. Yeah, bandit and plug. That's it. <laughs> so that's pretty neat. Where do they, where are the... Where the invites live? I'm not sure. Yeah. I haven't dug into that. We'll find out. So you want to check out the readme of that project. It shows you how you go through the process. Like if you're already in the Elixir Slack, it shows you how do I generate invite codes so that you can share them with Parker or like PRs to that project. And I did read how some people were given options of that this expires in like one day or does not expire, that kind of a thing. And some people were not given those options. So I don't know what kind of permissions it is that's around that, but just be aware that if you're wanting to help be inclusive and help other people join into the community, it's kind of incumbent on us who are already in there to make those invites available. Ah, I found them. They're in the runtime config. It's so simple. This is so simple. It's crazy simple. Fly.io. It's a great place to run Elixir apps with many global regions, a private network that makes it easy to cluster your app and a powerful CLI. It's something you should really try out. Experience it for yourself at fly.io. And next up, we saw a new Nimble ownership library. Nimble being the naming convention for these very tiny, very focused libraries like Nimble CSV or something where it's just about how do I parse CSV files or something. What is Nimble Ownership? So from the GitHub page, it says, a typical use case for this library is tracking resource ownership across processes in order to isolate access to resources in test suites. For example, the Mox library uses this module to track ownership of Mox across processes in shared mode. I don't know how directly applicable that will be to anything else, but like in the idea of I'm running tests, maybe I want to even have tests that are async 
And there's resources that have to be allocated, like who's owning this file, who's owning this process. This library might be a great way to help organize that. All right, next up, we saw a new project from Herman Velasco called Phoenix Test. It's an effort to make writing a dead view or live view test a more unified experience. I definitely get this. You have to kind of shift your mode into one or two, right? You got this kind of interactive API for clicking live view stuff. But then when you're like doing dead view, kind of like static content, like checks, you don't really click things with that. You kind of just like fuzzy find a string that should be on the page somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) You don't really navigate via HTML parsing and all that stuff. You could, but live view actually sets that up for you. It ships with Floki as the HTML parser. Anyway, so like Herman Valesco had the wonderful idea. Of course, it's kind of like, duh, not in hindsight, right? He had the wonderful <laughs> idea of creating a tiny unification layer called Phoenix Test to write those feature tests. So it shouldn't matter if you're testing a live view page or a static page. And Herman Valesco just loves the pipe operator. So he's making sure that all these helpers and stuff are pipeable. So you can kind of get like one streamlined process, I guess, right? Like starting with your setup, I guess. And then once you've got your view, then you can click a thing, assert it has, click a thing, assert it has, that kind of stuff, right? All in one pipe. Handles navigation between live view and static pages seamlessly. You don't have to worry about what kind of page you're viewing and testing. What I think is awesome about that is the idea of an integration test where I'm like going from a static view to a live view and then back to a static view, just that you can test across all of those. That's really neat. Yeah, that's the reality that some folks are living in when they've got a like an existing app and live view is this new great thing and they just like can't rewrite their app. You know, they still got dead views in there. So this is great, right? The other side of me would be like, well, rewrite your app and live view. (laughs) (laughs) That's just not reasonable sometimes. It's also true that you don't necessarily want everything to be live viewed. No. Everything has to be a live view. <laughs> it is a process that's on the server that's keeping open connection. Like when I'm on my, uh, like an iPad or something and I have a live view page open, there's just this little spinner that's up in the little Safari browser just showing that this is actively connecting. What's wrong with that? It's just something more. That's all. Because <laughs> if it's blog content and I don't have anything dynamic, you know, maybe I don't want that. But you could have something dynamic. <laughs> just kidding. You're right. You don't always want a live view, absolutely. Uh, especially when you're running those tiny little 50 meg RAM you know, servers or whatever you got, little Raspberry Pis. <laughs> He's got a section on his readme of why he created it, why does this matter? So if you're not convinced, maybe uh, read his own words to convince you why Phoenix Test is worth it. My first thought, honestly, was this needs to be merged in the Phoenix, but we'll see. I agree. I think it's the kind of thing where this is proving a concept and maybe it does just get merged in. Yeah. And next up, I just wanted to share, I wrote a little blog post about adding sound effects to a live view page. You know, we're just sitting here talking about live view pages. I do love me my live view pages. Like that's pretty much my default, but I do acknowledge there are times when you don't want it to be live view. But hey, I want a lot of my content to be live view pages and that's just me. So I wrote this blog post that shows both how you would add sound effects to it and why you might want to do it. Because playing audio sound effects on a web page turns out to actually be pretty complicated, mainly because of the history where advertisers were abusing it when these APIs were first added. The browsers started locking it down, and then the mobile browsers were even much more locked down in terms of having to create like uh, audio contexts and tying them to events and everything. It's just, it became quite a bit more involved. 
And if you're using web games or something like that, you're probably using a framework that's gonna help you do this. But you know, live is pretty awesome. And say you wanna build like, you know, a simple card game. I've had friends, you know, make like Secret Hitler as a live view game. Just adding little sound effects would be super handy sometimes. So in the post, I walk you through using a JavaScript library called Howler.js, which it handles all the JavaScript browser side permissions for setting up the audio context using the web audio API. And it even helps enable it for mobile, which you know can be more restrictive. Part of that browser permission thing is you have to tie a sound effect to a user action, right? Like you can't just start playing audio when you go to the page, the browser won't let you. It has to be tied to the user interacting with something on the page. Dang, and we've really moved away from our GeoCity days or MySpace days. <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah, so what you do is you might want to tie the sound effect to a button click. So that's the easiest one. I have a little GitHub project where you can download it, play with it, and see how it works. But you know, what's interesting about audio is audio contains information. It's not just, you know, sound effects for the sake of like soundboard or being annoying or something stupid. <laughs> it doesn't have to just be pointless stuff. It can actually be useful. In the little demo, I show a little button toggle to increase a number or decrease a number. And then the sound effect changes when you hit that upper bound and you can no longer go beyond that. So like that is conveying information where I don't even have to look at it visually. Another idea is say you're doing a live chat and maybe you want presence, a little audio when a friend comes on or maybe a background job is completed and you, the report you wanted is done, mm -hmm. or maybe it's a game and it's telling the player it's their turn. You know, whatever it is, there are times when adding tasteful audio is beneficial to the application. <laughs> so anyway, I thought it was really fun working on it. It's a project setup shows you how to do it. Oh, and the other thing I just want to say is because it's live view, you can have these timer-based events that are pushing down to the browser, time to play this sound that a friend has arrived or a background job's completed, or even, hey, after these actions have all taken place and resolved, uh, you win or you lose. You know, th those kinds of things can all be pushed from the server too and played. So it's really fun. I thought it had to be from a user action though. Just to start and set up the audio. Once it's all set up and going, then you can have the server push audio. Ah, okay. So I go into all that in more depth and linking out to all the different documentation for the browser makers and stuff. <laughs> That's pretty neat. But yeah, it's fun. Last up and next up, we got the NX Library Explorer version 0 0.8 was released. If you forgot what Explorer is, it's like a spreadsheet in NX. If you forgot what NX is, it's numerical Elixir. It's that optional GPU compiled Elixir logic. It models series, which is one-dimensional, and data frames, which is two-dimensional data for fast and elegant data exploration in Elixir. Converts these to tensors for GPU operations. So Explorer is kind of one of those fulcrum kind of libraries for ML operations out there. Then being that this is more like a spreadsheet, it even crosses over into business use a lot more too. So Chris Granger wrote a blog post that explains the significance of the changes and the changes are around data types. You know, Elixir is a higher level language where you don't have to think about short integers, unsigned, signed stuff, right? But when you're dealing with an ML model, it kind of matters more. We were impressed with the way you know they elegantly handled bridging both worlds because that's a big deal. It's like the difference between learning Elixir versus C, right? <laughs> so a, a tuple of like a simple F64 is a 64-bit float, but it's 
aliased to the atom float, you know, as well. I'll just spelled out float. So that this pattern is used for integers as well. So there's, there's kinds of, there's just lots of different like shorthand for making those kinds of optimizations. And if I remember right, like those optimizations can make the difference on like working on some processors at all. So that stuff can matter. The other big section of the blog post is covering previous changes to like the list data types. So anyway, explore version 0.8, big update. Go check out the change log, especially if you're using it. And if you're not using it, well, maybe now, now you can. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.